The story of Exodus ranks as one of the most known stories in the world. As an important religious text among many different belief systems, it has adopted many different facets over its lifetime. But to understand some of its most famous interpretations, we must first understand what happens in Exodus. Here is a brief summary of the most important events as they pertain to this podcast. A boy named Moses is born and raised away from his family among the Egyptian royalty. Nonetheless, he knows he is an Israelite, a people long under enslavement in Egypt. He flees to Egypt and returns to free his people after years of being away. After much struggle, he leads his people across the Red Sea. The Israelites come to Canaan, a land promised to them by God, and the chronicle ends. Our podcast touches on the way various different people see themselves in this tale, and what these actions taken in the name of this tale entail for both colonizers and indigenous people all across the world. One reason Exodus remains so famous today is its accessibility to the underdog. Many people relate to Moses and the Israelites initially suffering but knowing God has a greater destiny in mind for them. As such, Exodus remains not only popular among academics and theologians, but in pop culture as well. At the beginning of this podcast, you heard a brief clip from Louis Armstrong's song, Go Down to Moses. Now, listen to one from Bob Marley's Exodus. But while individuals might find Exodus's narrative relatable, its use by whole cultures is much more famous. Many oppressed peoples have found hope in Exodus that their people, like the Israelites, will be able to reclaim a promised land and live free of others' tyranny. In this podcast, we trace the roots of that parallel and why this particular story is so compelling to so many different peoples. And Exodus figures it differently uh, in different ways. And it's, it's probably the Puritans in North America where, we, where we'd say that's where we get this dominant picture new Israel taking new Canaanite land. That's Mark Brett, professor of divinity at the University of Melbourne. He spoke to us about the impact of Exodus on freedom movements of oppressed people across time. So where does it come from? It's, it's actually North America. It's, it's the Puritans, the people who um, imagine themselves as the new Israel, uh, you know, can take um, Canaanite land, in this case, Indian land, uh, and there was a lot of, um, you know, we, we are the new Israel with new rights of conquest against new Canaanites. Um, but, and here's the other qualification, uh, everybody knew about the violence done in Latin America. The Puritans read Las Casas. So Las Casas was translated to, into English and everybody knew it. And they were, they were saying to themselves, oh, we're going to be, better than the Spanish. We're going to be, you know, much more humane. So the dominant motif actually comes from the book of Genesis in a lot of the early Puritan writings, which is to find vacant land. So Winthrop talked about vacant land. So the idea was that they weren't stealing it, they weren't conquering it, um, at least in the early, you know, um, imagination, uh, that they were going to pure soil, as they called it. Uh, not not dispossessing anybody. Well, that didn't last very long. Uh, they became very aware that they were taking land, uh, and particularly after the Pequot War, 
um, the, the Puritans then started to say, oh no, we have it by right of conquest now, which was an old idea in international well, the law of nations that you could assert sovereignty by right of conquest. Um, so that, uh, that idea that they were taking vacant land and doing things very peacefully in contrast with those bad Spanish people, um, that, that really didn't last very long. But, but even the Puritans, and this is where they do have something in common with the, with the Spanish, the Puritans basically said, oh, um, you know, this, this, this war is just. So on the basis of a just war, we have now taken territory, uh, as opposed to, you know, sheer hubris, which they knew uh, wouldn't work. Uh, so they went from dominant motif of this is vacant land. Whoops, it's not vacant. We've just annoyed some Indians to, okay, they've attacked us. So we have a right to self-defense. Right, we'll take their land in, in so-called um, just wars, which is exactly what Blasius Rubius was trying to do. Because Blasius Rubius knew the Catholic tradition that uh, even the infidels, as they were called, had, had right of possession in their, own, in their own land. So they had natural rights. So the issue for him and for the Crown, who wanted a you know, trumped up legal reason to take Indian land, um, the, the reasoning had to do with the circumstances under which you could declare a just war and um, override the natural rights. Because everybody knew the, the Indians had natural rights. Uh, so the question was how to override those rights. And they had to find reasons to justify um, you know, a just war in order to take uh, territory. So immediately after the English Civil War, the Puritans had thought England was this fifth kingdom of God. But when the Restoration drove Puritan leader Oliver Cromwell out of power and drove the Puritan people out of England, that dream died, and the Puritans fled to the Americas, their flight from Egypt. The Puritans came to America thinking they were an oppressed people under the new English rule, like the Israelites. But as Professor Brett said, they soon came to use that same text to oppress others, claiming that its definition of a just war supported their imperialism. This is the flip side of Exodus. While the Israelites find their new God-ordained home, the Canaanites are driven off their homeland. This occurred in modern-day Namibia as well. The Nama people, led by Hendrik Wibui, used Exodus as a rallying cry against German imperialism and attempts to seize their land. But Exodus also inspired Wibui to seize native Herero land as well. Still, Wibui's leadership against the German occupation remains renowned. And as Professor Brett spoke about, there were multiple groups turning Exodus back on the Europeans. Some Maori people were one such group. So let's say um, Hendrik Witboy, he was, he was um, you know, leading his people in the 1860s, around about the same time in, in New Zealand, Otoroa, New Zealand, uh, there was a famous uh, debate with um, Viramal Tamahana, who, who had cited the book of Deuteronomy, interestingly, in his defence of Māori sovereignty. Um, how did that come about? They, they had signed a treaty back in 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, but a lot of the Māori had become Christians, even at that time in 1840, but certainly afterwards, um, but they didn't feel that as a result of becoming Christians that they therefore needed to cede their sovereignty to the Crown of England. They didn't, that didn't follow at all. Um, so they started reading their own story through um, the idea that they might be, so the Murray prophets talked about themselves being New Israel, 
meaning the Maori were new Israel, and therefore they were going to drive out the British, just like Joshua drove out the Canaanites. <laughs> that just turned it completely upside down. The British were then the Canaanites in 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 Aotearoa, in the in the eyes of some of these Maori prophets. What the Maori prophets did there, reinterpreting the Book of Exodus to condemn English imperialism, helped build a religious activism movement in New Zealand like no other. Still, they weren't the most famous group to use Exodus for activism. American slavery was another interesting avenue for the Exodus narrative to be explored in. Although we have demonstrated that the text had varying levels of relevance for various colonial powers, it did serve as a rallying cry for black people fighting for emancipation in the 19th century and beyond. However, this role of Moses in the Exodus narratives gradually changed as time moved on. While speaking with Professor Joshua Peterson about his article, Hurston and Reed, Disowning Exodus, we talked about many such points. We were able to hit on the changing face of Moses in relation to the works of famed African-American authors Ishmael Reed and Zora Neale Hurston. Um, so one thing that's, that's probably hard to grasp in the American context mm -hmm. um, is that Australia is a hugely secular country, much more militantly secularised um, than America. Um, so America has the, the great legal tradition, you know, the First Amendment, you know, um, the freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. But in fact, you know, every president talks about God. Right. Um, in Australia, prime ministers might get away with that on, on, on occasion, but generally speaking, they're scorned if they do that. That, that is very bad politics to talk too much about God. Um, and the same goes for academia. So tertiary education, academic context in Australia are overwhelmingly um, secular. So, for example, in Melbourne, my city, historically, the great university in Melbourne uh, was constitutionally structured so as to prohibit the teaching of theology. You just weren't allowed to teach theology. Uh, so you might mention Bible in you know, passing in archaeology or, or some other areas, uh, you know, glancing blows, but the dominant culture and even the constitutional underpinning of the university prevented you from doing that um, in any systematic way. So people like me found that there was no infrastructure in the universities when we come to do our PhD. So what did I do? I went to study at Princeton and then I did my PhD in England, uh, did a bit of study in Germany. So I wandered around to the great institutional powerhouses where you could do Hebrew Bible and, and um, theology with, with um, you know, great intellects without people thinking you're, 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 you know, obviously stupid being interested in these topics and then came back to Australia to teach. Uh, so in, in my university, which has only been a university about six years, uh, the University of Divinity, before that, we were established back in 1910 by a special act of parliament of the state of Victoria as the Melbourne College of Divinity, specifically allowing us to grant degrees in, in divinity, theology, uh, biblical studies, and so forth, as long as we weren't in the university. Right. Uh, so in, in, in Europe, that would just be nonsense. Every major university has got serious archaeologists, biblical scholars, you know, all your, all your great universities, the Ivy League universities, you know, they, they're all, they've got great um, biblical scholars, historians, theologians, all working side by side with people who do history and theology and, and uh, sorry, um, you know, archaeology or 
um, you know, Assyriology, Egyptology, or social sciences, anthropology, and so forth. We're all, you know, you're, you're all colleagues. In Australia, we are far more down the, the secularist line. And therefore, if you are an Aboriginal academic in the university system, it's actually quite difficult to um, embrace openly a theological interest or a history in the Bible, or interest in the Bible, unless you're doing um, the, the, the conventional thing, which is to say, Edward say he was right. It's all about you know using the Bible to support the colonial cause. Um, that's true. That does happen, but the reverse is also true. You know, so Roger Williams said no. Uh, you know, Pastor Doug Nichols in the 1960s in the in the civil rights movement in Australia said no. Wiramutama Tamahana in the 1860s in New Zealand said no. So they, these are Aboriginal Christians turning the, the the narrative upside down and turning it against the the colonisers. That's 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 not a story our our dominant academic culture really is terribly interested in. A brief note. Moses, Man of the Mountain, Mumbo Jumbo, and other stories discussed during this interview would be good for contextualizing Exodus in the 20th century. Secularization in Australian universities has also changed the way Indigenous scholars and activists approach Exodus if they want to write about it in a university setting. The in the middle, of the, the middle of the 20th century was the height of kind of the secularization thesis, that we're moving away from religion, that we are, you know, that smart people are going to get past um, the myths of the ancient world. Um, and there's just a distaste for, in the critical community, biblical retellings. The other one that I always go to is, um, is Joseph and His Brothers by, by Thomas Mann, which I just love as a novel, um, but gets constantly overlooked. I mean, it's, it's and, and I, I read it in the same way. It's, in the, in the middle of the 20th century, um, a retelling of a Bible story is, it's, it's, um, it's, I don't know, it's reactionary or it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's old news. And so you have, you have a similar kind of critical distaste for um, Moses, Man, oh, excuse me, for, um, for Joseph and his brothers that I think you see with Moses, Man of the Mountain. I mean, it's, it's an old timey thing, right? There were also certain trends of secularization in the U.S. literary scene that led to authors receiving more criticism for their works, retelling Exodus narratives or other biblical stories. Now, while we discussed how this affected many different authors, it is undoubtedly true that this had effect on African-American authors once again exploring Exodus in a new context. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think to a certain extent, um, I, I think perhaps maybe maybe one way of putting it is a, a, a just a, an increasing disillusionment with the idea that emancipation worked or something like you know you know because certainly the, the the Moses narrative makes a lot of sense and especially the story of um, the Israelites in Egypt makes a lot of sense in the antebellum South right I mean you know because I, I mean just just in terms of the basic chronology of the story you have hundreds of years of slavery leading up to a moment of emancipation. And, and you know, you, you could even kind of, and, and so, so you know, the the myth doesn't strain much in the lead up to, um, you know, emancipation. But then, and, and I, I would argue that you know, emancipation and liberation, even in the Exodus story, is a 
it's a vexed event in no small part because it's followed by the wandering in the, in, in the wilderness, right? I mean, so it's not, it's not a true liberation. It's not a true emancipation or it's not a, a definitive liberation. Um, that being said, you know, we do get to the promised land 40 years later. <laughs> I mean, I think to a certain extent, you know, if you, if, even if you're just going to want to, and I go, I'm not, I don't want to lay the chronology too neatly onto American history, but by the time, um, by the time uh, Moses' Man on the Mountain is written, you're, you know, you're almost, you're 75 years out from emancipation. So, um. so that's it. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast and you've learned at least a little bit more about Exodus as it pertains to colonial and anti-colonial thought. See you around. The spoke the Lord bold Moses said, Let my people go. If not, I'll smite your face born dead. Let my people go. Lord said, go down, go down, Moses, Moses, where?